20 years ago when I was in seminary training for the ministry, a very popular movement was uh, swirling around on the internet in particular, but in popular culture, and that was known as the New Atheism Movement. And you may recognize some names like Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett or Christopher Hitchens. And they wrote really famous books, you know, The God Delusion or God is Not Great. And these are things that I, once I got out of seminary, this is just going to be the way it was going to be, that more and more that kind of aggression, aggressive attack on faith would have been a normative thing in Christian life. People who say that faith is kind of a virus and this negative thing in the world and we've got to get rid of it. In fact, that was a movement that for whatever, uh, whatever its benefits or, or drawbacks eventually kind of faded away. New atheism movement is just not something that we see happen an awful lot nowadays, although, of course, there's still people who are atheists. And yet, at the same time, we look around at the church and we realize that throughout Canadian experience, it's not as if that this new atheism movement drifted away. Now everybody's surging back into churches and reclaiming faith. It's not the case. I'd like to suggest that this gospel here is something that is an encouraging word to us all, but I think also is a challenging word to those of us who have sort of absorbed this common assumption in our culture. And that common assumption is not that faith is a terrible thing. The common assumption is that worship is an irrelevant and useless thing. Because in the end, I think the big reason why people don't come to church, and one of the biggest ones, is they don't see the reason for coming on Sunday because they don't see that it does anything at all. I'd like to speak to you about that and also speak to you about how I think the gospel today encourages us to believe that not only is worship important, Worship is something that is incomplete unless it translates into action in the world. So what do I mean by saying a lot of people think that the church is kind of irrelevant and that worship isn't all that important? I mean, after all, maybe that's out in the world, but surely not in the church. Well, I remember when I was in seminary, another thing that we were required to to read at least parts of was a book that was commissioned way back in the 1960s by the Anglican Church of Canada. And you may have heard of it, The Comfortable Pew. It's a book written by Pierre Burton, and Pierre Burton was uh, not as famous as he used to be, but Pierre Burton was a very famous Canadian author at the time and an atheist. And the church realized that although in 1960s uh, it was at its high point, the church was as big as it will ever be, or as it had ever been in the past, and it's been in decline ever since, and at a greater cultural position, it realized that the kind of the, the ground was moving in different ways. And they wanted to ask, what is an outsider's perspective on the church? Why, uh, why is the church not connecting enough with young people? And his, his conclusions had some good ideas, but his core conclusion was really that the church needs to spend a lot less time worshiping and praying and a lot more time out in the world solving the world's problems. Pierre Burton really recognized and said, you know, in fact, I have some doubts about this whole worship thing, but I do recognize the church does some good things outside of its walls, so double down on that. You might say, well, that's fine. He's an outsider and a person who didn't uh, subscribe to faith, and yet in many ways, He's, his diagnosis was dead on for what a lot of people within the church's leadership were feeling. Some of you who are uh, Anglicans will know uh, uh, throughout the 70s and eight, 60s, 70s and 80s and a little bit uh, further on, certain Anglican bishops, for example, would say, you know, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead and doesn't really matter even uh, whether you uh, want to worship him and say that he's God. What's important is what we do for the poor. Even more recently, you may have heard in a certain denomination here in Canada, in Toronto, and I won't name them, a woman who was a minister in the denomination declared herself an atheist and said, I don't see how that affects my work at all. And so the denomination did not reprove her or remove her, and it still continues to this day as a, as a, as a minister in good standing in the church. So some Christians have come to believe this, but 
Of course, I think that many other Christians, though, they may not say that this is what they believe and that it's irrelevant. I think sometimes they, in some ways, think it actually is irrelevant to the world, even if it's personally relevant to them. Think about the ways that sometimes we come to church and we say, why is it that we come and we want to worship? A lot of the things that we enjoy here are things that we genuinely hold on to and say these are good things that we love. Why do you come to church? Maybe you come because you recognize that I really enjoy the worship. I enjoy singing and it opens my heart in some deep ways. Maybe I enjoy the message that's been given or I, I feel comforted when I take communion or when I uh, come on anointing Sundays and I'm prayed for or I meet friends I haven't seen all week and we, we gather together and there's something powerful in that. The challenge, of course, is that we come into this church and we say we want to worship and we hold on to it and say, man, that makes me feel warm. It makes me feel good. And then we kind of leave it here and go out into the world and spend another six days as if nothing had happened here on Sunday morning. And in many ways, that's different than the person that says worship is irrelevant. And in some ways, it's the same. I'd like to suggest that, in fact, they're two sides of the same coin. But what we recognize in worship is not just that it makes us feel good, not just that it honors God, but also that it equips us to serve the world. Why this Feast of Transfiguration, in which we look at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17, and Jesus' transfiguration is so important for us today, is that it says, yes, worship is deeply important. But I think it also points us to the fact that worship is not in itself just for us. Instead, worship is an opportunity to soak up the glory of the Lord so that we might reflect the glory and the love of the Lord into this world. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say, first of all, that worship is something deeply important? Remember who it is that is going up the mountain with Jesus. We heard just a few minutes ago, I read this, and I'll read the first bit of it again. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then uh, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground. They're overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. What's going on? These are disciples, you remember, are in many ways very, very imperfect people. Later on, we hear how James and John, uh, uh, in John's gospel, on the road to Jerusalem, uh, get their mom to go and go to Jesus and say, uh, can you get my sons, James and John, a good place in your kingdom when you come into your kingdom? Or they're arguing about how great they are. Or Peter denies Jesus three times. Or Judas betrays Jesus. These are people who are deeply flawed people and cowardly in many ways and, and frightened and confused. Imagine for them, they climb up on this mountaintop and instead of being like it was in Moses' day in Exodus where Moses alone goes up the mountain, Jesus brings his disciples right up into the great glory of God and they see something majestic and wonderful. They see something profoundly moving and, and, and they're, they're cast down on their, on their faces saying, I, I can't even look at how great and wonderful this is. And what happens? Jesus says, don't be afraid, get up. Jesus is there saying, in the middle of God's holiness and greatness and power, you don't need to be terrified. This God of heaven and earth loves you and has come to bless you and empower you. It's an amazing thing. Not only that, they learn something. 
There, Jesus asks just before he goes up, who do you say that I am? And, and, and Peter says, I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But it doesn't really sink in until they see Jesus is there with, frankly, the, the great all-stars of the Jewish faith. Even today, Jewish people would probably, if you're asked uh, to them, who are the greatest prophets of the Old Testament of their, their scriptures? They'd probably say Moses and Elijah. These were two of the greatest figures that Peter and all the Jewish disciples would have honored. And Jesus is there in his presence, speaking with them, transfigured, glorified. That is incredible. And more than that, God says to Peter and to the disciples, this is my son and points to Jesus. The beloved listened to him and the other two fade away and Jesus is left alone. It says something powerful about who God really is. This Jesus who's about to die for you, who's going to wash your feet. This is my son. This is a person who accurately reflects who I am. It is a profound comfort for them to know who God really is. What a wonderful experience of worship they have. Literally a mountaintop experience, but a time there where they are shook to the core, shook to the core with the knowledge of God's love and concern for them. Powerful friends. That's, of course, what worship needs to do for us. And we're not shaken quite in the same way. This is not an experience that they all had every day of their lives or every Sunday. But this is something that, is, uh, that we are meant to echo on Sunday. What do we come when we worship and we praise God's name? Do you not feel sometimes your heart really moved? So many times when people will come to me after the service and one song stands out for them and they'll say, wow, this really, it just, it really spoke to me. Or maybe the message did. Or, or maybe it is that we'll receive communion and you're just, you're chewing on this bread, this humble thing, and then reflecting on the fact that Christ came as a bodily person and said, your body matters. I don't just feed your brain. I'm feeding you your, your, with the bread and the, and the, the grace and the, the, the joy of the wine. And, and, and I care about your little things, the little things like giving our daily bread. And that can move us and it's deeply important. Or maybe the person pats you on the back or, or says, you know, I, I noticed you look a little down today. I just want you to know I care about you. These are important things and valuable. But I'd also like to suggest that not only are we saying worship is valuable, and I hope I'm preaching to the choir on this one, and you think worship is valuable, but there's something really interesting about this passage. Do you notice what happens when Peter is rocked to the core? And Peter, uh, Luke's gospel is even more clear. Matthew doesn't say it, but Luke's gospel says Peter didn't know what to say. He's dumbfounded. And then this is what he blurts out. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then from the heavens, immediately, in fact, it says, while he was still speaking, God interrupts him and says, no, 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 Peter. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved with him. I'm well, please listen to him. You see what Peter's trying to do? A dwelling place. He says, three dwelling place. We can hang out here on the mountaintop. We can experience this glory. We can just really, really hold on to this light God has shown me and just really love it and, and kindle it. And we can stay here in these dwelling places. And then God, before he even finishes his sentence, says, no, 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 no. We're not talking about honoring great figures of the past. I'm saying, listen, this is my son. Listen to him. And you know what he's going to tell you? He's going to tell you to take up your cross and follow him to the cross. And he's going to walk with you throughout all of this, but he is calling you to do something. Peter wants to remain there, and God says, no, we don't remain there. Go down from the mountaintop and go and serve. And it's not just here. You know, Moses and Elijah, as I said, are like all-stars in the, in the great canon of saints in the Old Testament, but it's not just because they were great. 
I also think because they're examples of how they deal with God's glory. It's why it is that God chose these two to be with Jesus. When we listened to the Old Testament reading a few minutes ago from Exodus 24, that was where Moses goes up the mountain to receive uh, uh, the commandments from God, to speak with God. But here's something really interesting. After he spent his time up on the mountain and he's coming down, and this is Exodus 34, verse 29. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, so those are the tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron, all the leaders of the congregation, returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them a commandment, all the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. See what happens to Moses? He didn't just go up there and leave the glow. He comes down, he's still glowing. And not only that, he goes and he instructs the people, and then he leads them from Mount Sinai into the Promised Land. Moses absorbs the glory of God, but doesn't hold on to it. Instead, that glory is reflected to the people of Israel, and he goes and does the actions God wants him to do. Something similar happens with Elijah. Have you ever heard that song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot? It's about this part that happens in Elijah's life. Elijah with his disciple Elisha. It's so confusing. It's so close to the two names, but I'll try to keep them right. Here in 2 Kings chapter 2, as they, that's Elijah and Elisha, continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariot's Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he'd struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. You notice what happens to Elijah. Elijah's lifted up. Elisha sees the glory that God is bestowing on Elijah. He sees the chariots of God, and he praises the chariots of fire. But when Elijah is taken into heaven, instead of Elisha saying, I'm, I'm going to build a tent, I'm going to hang out here. He picks up the mantle. So he picks up a sort of a scarf like I wear here, which is a symbol of his office as a prophet, and he puts it on. Then he walks to the Jordan River and hits it with the mantle, and the waters part, and he goes into Israel to do his job taking over from where Elijah left off. You see what happens? The glory of God is shown to Elisha, and instead of Elisha just treasuring it to himself, he takes up the task, takes up the mantle, goes in and continues his work and action. You know what the disciples do? They don't do that. Just after Jesus comes down from the mountain, a little bit later, chapter 17, verse 14, we hear, when they came to the crowd, that's Jesus and the disciples, a man came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Jesus says, Come, follow me. Fill yourself with the glory God is showing. 
Now go out and spread that glory to the world and the disciples don't. And Jesus is annoyed, right? How much longer must I put up with you? Here's the difficult question we need to ask. Is that what Jesus says to us? I've filled you with my glory. I've given you a message. I've filled you with the body and blood of Christ. I've filled your heart with joy as you sang. And then you go out into the world and you do nothing that shows that you're filled with God's glory and reflect it to the world. You know, we're starting the season of Lent in just a few days. Ash Wednesday, a couple days from now, starts the Lenten season. It's a season of repentance, and it's not meant to be a repentance in the sense of beating yourself up. It is a repentance that says, take a good look at yourself and ask, are you the kind of person like Moses, who absorbs the glory of God and reflects it? Like Elijah, uh, who absorbs the glory of God, passes it on to Elisha, and Elisha goes on and serves. Or are you instead like the disciples as they are seen here? Disciples who are filled with the glory of God and yet do not go into the world casting out spirits, who do not go into the world healing the sick, who do not go into the world helping those most in need. It's a chilling question, and Jesus asks it today. I'd like to suggest that although that's a chilling question, there's always grace behind everything Jesus says. You know, the disciples here chicken out. They don't do the right thing, even after they've been seeing God's glory. Do you know how the Gospels end? They end with Jesus ascending into heaven, being seated at the right hand of the Father, and God pouring out his spirit on the disciples. And the disciples go into the world, preach the gospel, and do God's work. The first time they see Jesus glorified in the transfiguration, it doesn't change them. But the second time they see Jesus glorified, ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father is when they change. And they start doing what God asks them to do, and showing God's glory to this world. For all of us, we may find it difficult to know how best to glorify God in this world by serving others. We realize we're small people in a big world with big problems, but God doesn't say go and change the world. I think God says, will you love the neighbor that I put in front of you? Think about the coworker that you see every day. Can you do something that shows them they're valuable? Listen to them when other people don't? Sit with them when other people don't? Forgive them when they make mistakes and be quick to seek forgiveness when you let them down? Can you be the kind of spouse who looks to your husband or to your wife and knows there are things that I want to resent, things I don't want to forgive, things I want to hold against you, but refuse to do it because you want the glory of God to have an effect in changing you? Let go of the resentment. Be willing to speak the truth in love. Be willing to forgive and be willing to humble yourself to them. These are not things that are easy, but they don't require that you be Hercules. Jesus says, absorb the glory. Let what energizes and encourages you here today transform you so that you might go out into this world and love in the way that Jesus loved. He was unafraid to wash his disciples' feet and unafraid to die for them because he loved them. Be that same kind of person. And let this Lenten season be a time where you examine how you can better be like that kind of person. And lean on God's grace because you can't do it by yourself. You know the good news? Grace is something God just loves to give us. So open your heart, and as you come today and receive, ask God for the grace to be the person he needs you to be.